Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do follow and share it with a friend. And a five-star review will always help in a big way wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really enjoy the episodes, then please do consider becoming a patron of the show. Finally, sign up to our free monthly newsletter, giving you some much-needed updates in the world of adventure. Just use the link in the description. Today's guest is Damien Hall. With a background in hiking from Everest Base Camp to New Zealand, he has done ultra running in the mountains, in the Arctic, in the deserts, and most recently is known for his fastest known time of the Pennine Way run in the UK. Such an inspiring chat with him and just very down to earth too. Great to hear his thoughts and opinions on some of his experiences and running. I really, really hope you enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think of it on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. But with no further hesitation, let's dive into the interview with Damien. Here we go. Okay, Damien, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, pretty good, really. It's it's a Friday, isn't it? So end of the week. Um, yeah, pretty good. I did I did my long run today, so I do I do actually. I'm a little bit a little bit weary, but in a good you know good weary, good weary. I think. Yeah, I was looking at your Strava details before, and it's your Strava account, and it's just mental the amount of miles you do monthly and weekly. What's I think what's what's a nice pace for you is probably like that'll do me in for the month i think <laughs> well i i don't know i i mean yeah i'm i'm kind of a volume guy but i'm not a very i don't think i'm a very fast guy and i almost i like it's interesting actually because i'm a coach myself now and i coach a lot of different people and i'm definitely someone who i enjoy long slow runs that's probably my favorite type of run i don't really enjoy going fast all, <laughs> all that much but i've i it's been really interesting because i'm working with people increasingly who kind of run too fast too much and they don't do the long slow st- well or even just the slow you know just the easy runs being easy um and that i really enjoy that i suppose it helps obviously if you're in somewhere scenic and then you can just switch off a bit and relax and and um you you, you maybe not thinking about your pace so much i appreciate if you're not somewhere scenic necessarily i think it's easier to speed along especially on on quicker tarmac or something but um yeah yeah, I like I like slow running was what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> in a very good way of putting it. For the questions, I, I was thinking a good place to start is right back at the beginning. So what was growing up like? Was it adventurous, sporty? Yeah, I mean my parents weren't weren't sporty at all, but they were very outdoorsy. So mm. we, we moved around a lot, but but from about ten I grew up in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire and um yeah we did a lot of hill walking I suppose nearly all our family holidays were Devon um Wales South Wales and and occasionally Scotland there were always camping holidays always walking so I definitely loved the outdoors it just wasn't sport wasn't really a thing but yeah generally pretty happy really do you think it laid some good foundations for you get enjoying later in life getting outdoors or or, or did that yeah. come on its own event no no, I think it definitely did because I remember I remember some holidays, especially in Devon, actually kind of uh, kind of rock hopping on rivers. Like we'd just go walking for the day, and I remember really dancing along these rivers or, or jumping, you know, jumping from stone to stone on these rivers. And then I remember, you know, years later, two or three decades later, I'm doing races where you kind of have to 
some of the trails are, are just rocks, you know, in, in some races. Uh, and I remember getting these flashbacks almost of childhood thinking, this is what I used to do when I was, when I was 10. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some connection there, but I think like a lot of people, when I got to sort of mid and late teens and early twenties, I wasn't nearly so interested in that sort of stuff. It was much more, um, you know, um, you know, pubs, football and, and girls and so on. Yeah. There wasn't much interest in that side of the world then, but then, um, I guess it gradually, gradually comes back as, as so often it does. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the interesting things I, I found about you, which is, which is that you've only really started running in what, just under a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, to, to, to give the full honest story, I suppose, like, at, like kind of sixth form age at school, I did do some cross country races. I did win some, some school races. So not, not library, not particularly competitive. And it was just at the same time when all the quick, all the faster kids had discovered cider and cigarettes a bit before me. Uh, and I was a bit, I was a bit slower onto that stuff. So I was suddenly like, I didn't used to be one of the quicker boys. And then suddenly I was when a load of them had sort of left school or, or weren't interested. Um, so I did win some races, but there was never any, you know, any athletics training or, or anything like that. I uh, didn't know anything about running clubs or coaching. And I always wanted to just play football. So I wasn't interested. Um, and then, so I really didn't do a race between the ages of um, probably 18 or 17 and um, 30, 35, I think. So at 35, I just moved to Bath, just got back to the country after living in Australia. And I signed up to, for the Bath half when I was feeling, uh, I was just feeling a bit unfit. I'd, I remember I'd worked through a night, work, worked through the night on a project and, and just felt kind of, yeah, unfit and fed up and tired. And I thought, well, I'll sign up for the Bath half and that'll get me fit. And for those who don't know, the Bath half, yeah, it's a really big event um, here, actually. You get about 12,000 mm. people running it. And it was... I mean, you know, for training, I probably only ran twice or maybe three times a week. Um, but I was playing football as well, I suppose. But um, and I just absolutely loved it, and um, I loved the the atmosphere with the crowds, and and I, I guess you know just those simple things of pushing yourself a bit and not knowing if you, you know I'd never run that distance before. So you, that's wonderful. The first time you run a new distance, whatever the distance is, even yeah. if it's five k, and you don't know if you can run five k, it's a brilliant feeling. But the first two or three years of, of unknown distances is wonderful. Um, but I loved that first event. And straight away thought I want to do more of this. Yeah, so that's nine nine years ago, I suppose. Nine years ago is my first um, running event, really, as an adult. That's incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, skipping forward nine years, this year you, you smashed the previous record, set the new record for the for the Pennine Way. I was just wondering, in, in a bit more detail, how was that journey for you? Oof. <laughs> well. <laughs> Uh, Where do we begin? <laughs> yeah, well, so the next year I, I did the Bath Half again, and I, I already had signed up for my first marathon, the Brighton Brighton Marathon. Um, so I did I did that. So this is all 2012, and um, I think I would have gravitated this way anyway towards the, the longer stuff. So yeah, what I forgot to mention is I was really into trekking, so like multi-day walks. Um, I've done sort of Everest Base Camp Trek and the Inca Trail and lots of treks in New Zealand and Australia. And in Britain, I'd walked the coast to coast and, and the Pennine Way. Um, so I really enjoyed doing that, which was like, you know, I suppose big multi-days out in, in hills, um, you know, stuffing, stuffing your face and, and getting lost in, in the clag and uh, camping out and that sort of thing. You know, it was kind of an adventure and it was, it's not athletic, is it? But you, it requires some effort, you know. Mm. So, um, so I was already doing that and loved doing that. And me and my friend were doing like, we did the National Three Peaks and, and sort of Yorkshire Three Peaks and the Welsh Three Thousands and essentially hiking challenges. But, mm. but what I'm realizing increasingly is they were, they were like FKT attempts or at least 
outdoor challenges, the, the, whether you're walking or running wasn't, you know, we were still walkers, but like, it's not that important in a way, even when you're, when you say you're running, like when people say they run the Bob Graham round, like a lot of it is hiking, the uphills is power hiking. Um, so in a way it's not that different. And that is more similar to me than say running a half marathon on the roads or a marathon on the roads. So I was, I was already heading that way, but basically a magazine, um, I was a freelance journalist and I was sort of pestering a magazine to let me write about running and my new running experiences. And they called my bluff and they said, we don't want, we don't want a story about your marathon. We want to send you on your first ultra marathon. And so they sent me on a, a race called the wall, which was, yeah, two, at the time you could do it over two days, six, 69 miles over two days. And uh, this was in uh, late summer of, of 2012. And um, it was a more profound feeling than the marathon. It was more, I love the camaraderie with people. It just felt like we were all running like as a team almost because it was so social. No one seemed to be, you know, chasing a time or anything. The aid stations were obviously fantastic. You know, there's just, mm. they're like a children's birthday party, aren't they? Without, without uh, you know, without all the hyperactive kids and the, and the sugar. Well, you, we still get the sugar crashes and the tears, don't we? But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the aid stations were amazing. And then of course, I guess the sense of achievement is inevitably a bit, a bit greater as well. And the scenery obviously is, is superior, you would hope anyway. So I just straight away thought, you know, that was hard, but I really want to do more of this. I love this. So the next year I was doing my first 100K and my first 100 miler. And by the end of that year, I already had a place at the spine race. So I'd, I'd sort of escalated things quite, quite quickly, I suppose. At the time, it, didn't, it just felt natural to go 100K, all right, 100 miles, all right, 268 miles. I, I guess I realise in retrospect, most people don't are a bit more cautious, a bit more sensible with, with jumping up the distances. But I mean, it all worked out for me. And maybe partly because I realized now most of them were magazine assignments for me. Like I pretty much wouldn't get paid if, if I didn't finish the race. It wasn't, you know, it's not about the money, but it's about like, I owed that magazine a story kind of thing. Mm. Sometimes there'd be a photographer as well. And, and I never really double checked, but I think they would have still got paid. But in my head, they might not get paid if I didn't finish. So there was quite a decent incentive there. And yeah, so, so within yeah, less than two years of being in the sport, I was doing the spine race. And again, that was just an incredible adventure. And, again, and it, was, it was more of the hiking background that helped me do okay there. Um, you know, there were a lot, as usual, you know, less than half the people finished and the weather was, you know, the weather was really, really exciting. But yeah, I got, I got there. What's the way of putting it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was definitely challenging, but it was just a great adventure. That was, that was the key word, I think, that it felt like, it didn't really feel like a running race, you know, it just felt like an adventure. It, and I'd already walked the Penaway before so it was exciting to kind of see the Penaway in, in the winter and experience it again uh, albeit most in the dark yeah and I kind of thought I love you know I love this I love this sport um this is this is for me um and in fact this is all quite quite vivid again in my mind because I'm um excuse the clunky shameless plug but I'm, I'm writing a lot of this up as a book at the moment which will be out in May so so I'm going through a lot of this again at the moment lo looking at sort of oh, notes nice. and, and, and stuff I've written um lots of people who, who do the spine race don't just do it once. There are people who have done it five and six times. It's quite kind of addictive. It's just this whole, I, well, people talk about the spine bubble for that week and you really don't think about anything else in the world other than you're in the spine race. Um, but even leading up to it, that three or four months is quite intense and quite, but I love having that sense of really clear purpose and, and training towards something really, something you're frightened of, but you really want to do it and, and it really makes you commit to it, you know, and it's really, and when it's gone, 
and, and, and you know, explorers and adventurers talk about, you know, post-expedition blues. And this is a kind of much smaller version because we can just sign up for another race, can't we, in a few months or whatever. Yeah, when it, when it's, when it was gone, I, I just thought I need, I, need, I need to be back there. I, I need to do this again. By the time it came to the Pennine Way, I'd done, um, yeah, I'd, I'd walked the Pennine Way and then I'd run it twice already. So that was, yeah, pretty good preparation. So I already had that sense of, um, I don't know, of just, I suppose, being in love with it. it it's some parts of it are hard to love, but some of it, some of it's, I love the history of the Pennine Way, especially um, for those who don't know about the, the mass trespass. It's worth, worth looking up, a really important piece of uh, civil disobedience from 1932 um, that, that we're all benefiting from now. Um, so yeah, that sowed the seeds, and I knew at the time, you know, Mike Hartley's record from 1989 of running it in one go. But I didn't, you know, yeah, it took me a long time to think I might be capable of that uh, because yeah, it's such an intimidating record. It stood for years and years, you know, decades. Um, so I set my first FKT in 2016, and I suppose after that, uh, well, I remember the drive home and with my two friends and discussing what next, and, and that that was on the list. But it was like I'm not, I'm, you know, I wasn't ready wasn't ready for that so it took I suppose it took a few you know a few more years of, of some other FKTs and some decent good race results and a GB vest and so on to give me I don't know to give me the confidence I suppose to go for to go for something like that yeah I was gonna ask how do you prepare for something like that is it, is it more is it more just getting the confidence and the experience of doing similar things or is there a certain training regime you do in a build-up to an ultramarathon well the Pennine way for me was very a very personal um, thing, which I think really helps, you know, the more personal you can make a, a, a challenge, the more meaning it has in both in your training and when it comes to, when it comes to the event and, the, and those difficult moments. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the races where you just sign up on a whim uh, and you don't really care, you're not really invested, um, you know, you, you can do all right, but they're less likely to, matter to you you're less likely to prepare thoroughly you're less likely to for you know keep forcing yourself along when you when you're um when it gets difficult um yeah the Pennine way was a huge amount of preparation I, I i prepared more thoroughly for that than than anything i ever had before i um the physical aspects are only part of it really um there was a whole logistical thing of course i had a lot of paces and, and road crew helping me and that was a lot of organization mm-hmm. and then there's the whole psychological side of it um and i did for the first time you know, partly because this is kind of kind of my job, and I'm a coach, so it was worth it for me. But I spoke to a sports psychologist. Um, just, I was just intrigued because because every year I try and pick a couple of areas of the sport that I could could develop more. Um, so the previous year I'd I'd worked a lot more on say strength and conditioning work. Uh, this year I thought, well, I've never really looked at say hydration and electrolytes and, and salt. So it's, you know, salty sweat. So I, I went to precision hydration. Um, to get like a bespoke because we all sweat quite differently it's quite interesting um, but I had a bespoke bespoke you know sweat test so that we could see how much electrolytes I should be getting in um, awesome. and the other thing I did for the for the year was yeah the, the psychology side of things which was fascinating as well um, but that was part of her advice as well was was um, uh, and for anyone who's interested yeah Dr. Josie Josephine Perry she has a, a brilliant website and book I'm pretty sure the book is called Performing Under Pressure um and i think a website is performance in mind i don't know if you do show notes but i'll, I'll forward you yeah of course do yeah afterwards um but, but yeah part of her advice was, was you kind of yeah you've got to make it as personal as possible obviously the panama was already personal to me but i i so i guess to help motivate myself i i made it i brought in i suppose you know um 
what would you say ethical i suppose ethical elements to it to make it feel uh i suppose more important than it was but but mm. to give you know to um so i suppose what i'm talking about is is you know i'm quite i'm quite alarmed about climate change and and, and all of that so i just tried to make it as green as possible um mm. obviously ultimately i was encouraging more car journeys that wouldn't have happened otherwise um but i was already carbon negative for, for the year um i've been audited by our carbon you picked up litter while running the setting the record as well which i, I found <laughs> insane yeah that was well, so i added three elements to the run that made it i guess more personal for me more meaningful more meaningful for me and that was yeah fueling without animal products which is quite easy now fairly easy nowadays uh fueling without plastic waste was which was is actually really difficult if you think of so often before a long run you know if i'm visiting the brecon beacons or something i'll go and the petrol station i'll pick up i don't know several chocolate bars a bag of crisps and and uh, you know a, a chocolate milk or something and you know most of those things come in plastic and it's hard how do you buy those things without plastic and sometimes it's impossible and some of that plastic is recyclable but even then the actual percentage of it that actually gets recycled is very small so it's there's a lot of waste going on so that was actually quite hard but quite exciting quite fun to kind of get around problems you know i found one company that does crisps um you know that that is in biodegradable uh, sorry compostable wrappers i've since got a yeah a great company called outdoor provisions who gave me bars vegan bars and they're yeah uh, again compostable wrappers so it took a bit of research took a bit of planning uh, but that was that was a lot of fun in a way and then the third one was to pick up litter as we went which in a way is quite a quite an easy i'd almost say gimmicky to be honest quite an easy thing to do uh, but it does seem to get people's attention but also my pacers did almost all of it i've got to be honest um and a wonderful team of, of pacers uh i don't think i directly ever asked anyone to but they just they just sort of really bought into the idea that that's what we're doing so i was really i was really grateful of that um but those elements although they i don't know how they sound but but really they were selfish elements because it made it, it gave me more motivation and that was kind of part of the psychology prep psychological preparation of it i suppose was trying to make it as yeah. meaningful as possible so that worked for me and and i think you know that can work for anyone but people have to do have to make things personal to them i suppose and whatever they you know whatever values matter to them um if you're doing something really difficult and, and the obvious thing actually the obvious parallel with that is is just you know just fundraising which is the classic you know if people are doing their first road marathon most people are fundraising and that actually makes it really meaningful for people um mm. especially if you're fundraising something that's quite personal to you um yeah that that side of it all really i mean i like you said in a, in a talk once you, you were talking about friends and how you said you don't have a lot of friends who in in the industry who I don't have perhaps, a lot of friends uh, no don't <laughs> in the industry who, who maybe don't know like your, your last name or know your kids names or something but if you ask them to 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 bring food to you on the middle of a mountain somewhere halfway through a run they'd do it and meet you there so yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you, I, I thought of that when you were talking about the paces just then yeah well it was absolutely like that you know people I'd never even met before uh, I mean most of the paces I knew to an extent but sometimes like I just didn't know anyone in that area so it'd be a friend of a friend or not even a friend of a friend it'd be like a friend of a friend of a friend um, <laughs> and they were going to meet me at three in the morning you know somewhere reasonably remote They're, so they you know I don't even know all of them whether they had to give up a day's work or not, but some of them would have, and they would have possibly driven quite a long way. And then, and then the weather's not very nice, and and, and you're asking them to carry your kit, and they're opening the gates for you. You know, in one way, you could paint it as quite a quite a thankless task for them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was incredible that, that you know, there's an, an incredible community of of runners in Britain that that will do amazing things. And you know, I I I'm trying to 
of the next few years, I've got to try and repay that, whether it's directly <laughs> to those people or to other people. I got in a few support, support stints after that. I've done three or four since that with, with other friends. Often they weren't friends directly helping me, but uh, I'm mm. hoping it's all, um, all kind of karma. Um, but it is great fun, actually. Like, it is exciting to be part, you know, I did that. And then I, I, yeah, at least three people I've gone out with since that. And it is, it is a lot of fun. I don't, I don't want to say as if I'm, uh, what's the word, taking for granted the support I mm. had, but, but doing that and then going to support other people, I guess in a way the pressure's off you a bit. And, it, and, and it's, plus, you know, if they've got really good snacks and they don't need them, uh, then you get, you know, some bonus, bonus treats. So I supported John Kelly as I like to do because he, he has lots and lots of donuts. <laughs> um, so I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that. Yeah, I suppose you, you don't have to worry about packing all the pounds, do you? When you're, when you're just continuously running for <laughs> for over twenty four hours. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, it's the opposite problem. It's the opposite problem. Often you're not getting yeah, not getting the calories yeah. in. So um, yeah, yeah, stuff your face. It's 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 brilliant. So um, I was watch I watched that video of you of you breaking the record, and I really liked the term you used uh, to describe when you get a bit low. And I wanted to, to explore that a bit further. So when things are tough, what kind of thought processes and coping mechanisms do you have to stop yourself from being what you call a sulky snail? <laughs> uh, well, I think the first thing to say is they don't always work. That I do, I do <laughs> end up being a sulky snail, um, usually. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily an expert. Uh, but I, I think number one is, well, well, the cliche is know your why. Like, why are you doing it? Um, you know, who, almost who you're trying to impress or, or, you know, why are you there? Um, I guess I, like, my kids aren't impressed with any of this, but I, I guess ultimately I think of them, I suppose, when it, when it gets difficult. And I, and I try to think I'm, I'm setting an example to, for them, I suppose, and hopefully one day they'll be proud. Um, or, at yes, least, definitely. or at least just, the, you know, those, those, really, <laughs> um, those really simple metaphors, I suppose, about, you know, the, the things in life that are hard, you know, that are hard work and, and difficult to get to. They're the things you actually want, want to try and get, you know, the things that come easy usually aren't the things worth holding on to. I suppose, yeah, there are other, there are other simple metaphors like that in, in running, uh, running long distances, I think. Um, mm. So yeah, it's usually kids first and then I suppose more um, ethical stuff like, like this sort of um, green sustain, sustainable ideas. But then also I suppose what was really powerful on something like the Penang Way was that, you know, I had so many people out helping me, you know, on the ground and, and, that was really inspiring because like I say, people would come meet me at three in the morning and you kind of think, well, they, they did that for me. They hardly know me and they've been prepared to do that. So the least I could do is, you know, get a move on and stop feeling sorry for myself and whinging. Um, and then I suppose another one is simply, you've got to remember you signed up for it in the first place. Like so often you kind of, you're halfway through and you're like, Oh, I hate running. Why am I here? I hate these mountains. Uh, why, you know, I hope this is over soon. And then you think, Oh, no, I spent three months looking forward to this, you know, trying to remember you know you knew it would be difficult and it, it being difficult gives it value as well so yeah there, there's there's three four five six things i think you can you can sort of remind yourself of there yeah but people again i think people need to personalize it and, and think what's going to motivate them i suppose what and it's it's definitely worth thinking about beforehand um you know almost yeah preparing your sort of mental tool tools um what what is going to work for you when it gets difficult i suppose yeah, and it's really interesting that you delved into it. It's like you predicted the next question, uh, which is I was going to ask about your whys. And it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting yeah. to hear you, hear you use that as the coping me mechanism in, in some ways. Because I, I was watching the TEDx talk you did, and, um, and you, was, you were talking about the, um, uh, some of the behind the scenes on the Southwest Coastal, run path, coastal Path Run. Yeah, I mean, the mental side in this is, is um, well, I, I was going to say huge, but it's kind of everything, really. I mean, you know, also, I mean, 
I don't know if you've done a hundred miler yet, but it's like, we can all move for a hundred miles. Like it probably helps not even think of it as, as running, like, because we, you know, we do hike bits, but you know, if, if there was something terrible going to happen or, or say we're a hundred miles from my house and we knew that if we didn't get there in 24 hours or 30 hours, uh, which are kind of some of the standard, you know, distant um, times, um, the house would, would, I don't know, catch fire and start burning. Like we'd get there. Right. Mm. So, so we can physically do it. Um, usually, but you know, most able-bodied semi-fit people. Um, so, so much of it, you know, it, it's, it's in the head. Um, and it's usually, it's usually when the head goes that, that, that we stop not, you know, not usually a, a proper physical um, issue uh, really, you know, from, from, from chatting to clients and so on. Um, well, I mean, it's, you said the same thing that that same TEDx talk, you said, it's not the size of your muscles. It's the size of your willpower. Yeah. And, I, and I started, yeah. I started getting to thinking like that there's, I ask this question quite a bit with all the different different adventures we've got on the the podcast, and I think it, it can, I think it can apply. But I'm just wondering, in your thinking, what kind of parallels can you draw between ultramarathon running and life? Yeah, I think I think there have got to be lots, haven't there? Um, but as soon as you said that, they all they all vanished from my head. Um, yeah, the, the obvious <laughs> one is the one I just mentioned, I suppose, which was the kind of um, um, yeah, the things that are worth getting. You know, take take some getting like they're difficult um you know the things that are hard hard to get the hard work but perseverance well another cliche we have in the sport is the bite-sized chunks which is you know if you're standing Mm. on the start line of a hundred mile and you think i've got to run 100 miles it's really really off-putting um to put it mildly but if you think i'm going to try and run five miles to the first aid station or, or maybe 10 miles that might seem manageable and then you kind of think, okay, well, I'll run to the next aid station, which might maybe 10 miles or often less. And that just makes it, you know, that to me feels like when you first become a parent and you think, oh, I've got to look after this person. You know, I don't even know how to do this. And I've got to look after this person for, I don't know, 20 years, uh, 30 years, uh, who knows? And obviously that's terrifying, isn't it? Um, as, as you well know yourself. But if you kind of think, let's, let's just get through today, <laughs> which is often the case, I think, in the early years, like, let's just get through today, or at least I can make it to the first, the first you know, midday, midday nap. I can, I can make it to that, hopefully, with a few more bits of cake and tea. So that bite-sized chunks thing, definitely, yeah, definitely um, applies, even if it's a big project at work that's intimidating, you know, um, you break it up into the, the, the chunks. I was thinking along the lines of, too, that it's trudge, especially this year <laughs> of all years, you know, with an ultramarathon, you're just putting one foot in front of the other and just just keep going. And and it feels like it's the same with this year. You just need to to not think about the end goal and think, well, that's off putting a vaccine in eighteen months. <laughs> so you got to just think, well, let's get to the end of this month. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And, and as long as you're making like some progress, like for example, well, there's a great um, one of the great books I read early on when I was getting into ultramarathons is called Relentless Relentless Forward Progress. And 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 what that means really is kind of like even when it's really awful, as long as you're just moving forward in some mm. way, the, one of the big changes, of course, between say marathon running and, and trail, trail ultra marathon running is you, you're really not usually that interested in your pace. Whereas on a road marathon, it's got to be, you know, six and a half minute miles or six minute miles. You know, you're obsessed with the pace. Um, whereas in ultra marathons, it's usually like, as long as you are moving forward, because the size, the size of the task, the, the size of the challenge is so much bigger. As long as you are moving forward, you are moving towards the end goal. You are getting there. So it doesn't really matter if you're, you know, shuffling, walking, um, even, even kind of hopping or crawling, um, you know, as long as you're getting forward. And I think just eat, eat lots of cake and drink lots of tea 
That's not really a metaphor, but I think it applies to both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can we, can, can we call that four? Yeah, let's call it a four. It's not, it doesn't <laughs> quite count as a metaphor, but I think in both cases that it's valid, especially, yeah, especially to... Well, I mean, getting to something a bit more fun, obviously, you are someone who has just, uh, you've got some incredible experience, um, you know, even from, even from the trekking days, but more specifically through to these ultramarathon days. I was thinking, what kind of challenges do you face doing the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc compared to doing the Sahara Desert? Well, in those cases, the, the, to be honest, the race format is very different. So hmm. in the Sahara Desert, you, a lot of the days you don't actually run very far at all. Um, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc is much, much more challenging because it's 100 miles nonstop. Whereas uh, in the Marathon de Sable, there's one long day of 50 miles. But the other days, they're often, if I remember it right, they're often like 20K. That race isn't, I'll be honest, that race isn't nearly as tough as it sounds, you know, as it sounds. Um, it's a fun holiday, really. I mean, the, the, the long day is challenging. Um, <laughs> that one, it's, <laughs> honestly, my favourite, my biggest memory from that race is, is that you spend a lot of time just hanging around in your tent. So it, it's like, it was just a lovely social race that, you, you know, you get to know people and none of us had, none of us had smartphones. You couldn't really access, you know, um, the internet, et cetera. So we, we did this weird thing that people used to, day, used to do back in the day, apparently, which is called hanging around and talking, uh, which, which felt quite weird. Yeah, it felt <laughs> weird at first, but I'm told, I'm told we used to do that um, <laughs> back in the day. So, yeah, that one, I mean, it is frustrating to run on sand dunes, for example, but not much of the race is actually on sand dunes. Most of it is quite runnable. Um, but, yeah, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc or, or UTMB is a lot harder because it's simply 100 miles in one go. So a lot of people who do that are on their feet for, I mean, a lot of people are on their feet for almost two days and two nights. So that's, yeah, that's much harder without rest. Um, and much, you get a lot sore in that race as well because of the, the descents down the mountains. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's what, to me, one of the exciting things about this sport is that you could do such different styles of races and in such different places as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, another one I've done is the, the ice ultra in, um, in Sweden. Arctic Sweden, which is, yeah, absolutely well, actually, gorgeous. That was going to be my next question again. So it's like you got the crystal ball yeah. out tonight. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, hacked your, I hacked your emails. <laughs> I mean, we often actually do talk about people's uh, like specific trips and adventures on this podcast. And I was actually going to ask, I mean, alongside battling minus 36 degrees Celsius, <laughs> like how did ice ultra Sweden go for you? Well, it was just really, really beautiful. And, and again, although it sounds really extreme and I do, you know, I do give talks sometimes and I love showing one or two pictures from the race. Cause you know, you've got kind of uh, icicles hanging out your nose and, and so on. Or, you know, your <laughs> eyebrows are frosted up and so it looks amazing, you know, really dramatic, but yeah. really I, you know, I never went more than an hour where I didn't see a member of the, of the team. Um, again, it's a multi-stage race. So they stop you each night and you rest and, and eat and drink. Yeah. It's still challenging, but it's not, um, you know, it's not non-stop. It's not, you're not running through the night, but the, the environment, yeah, was incredibly beautiful. And, and, um, and I must, yeah, I mean, some people did get frostbite and they, they had to leave the race, uh, if I'm honest. So maybe I'm being a bit, a bit flippant, but if you, you know, if you're reasonably prepared, it was, um, it was a wonderful experience. Just really, really beautiful. Just, um, just snow and ice and woods like Narnia. And yeah, it was, wow. it was beautiful. Yeah. I guess it would be too dangerous to run at night time, right? It would just get too cold. Yeah, you're probably right, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had a longer day where some people were finishing in the dark, but not like, not mega late or anything. We got told on several nights that um, 
that we might see the Northern Lights. So, so we'd all sort of hang around and look out the windows and stuff. And on about the fourth or fifth night, I, I, they said, oh, we might see the Northern Lights. And I was like, nah, I've heard that before. I'm, I'm going to bed because I wanted to win the race. So I thought I need my sleep. Mm-hmm. And of course, the next morning, everyone was saying, did you see the Northern Lights last <laughs> night? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and everyone else had these amazing pictures of, of you know, the, the, ter- the whole sky turning green and so on. And I'd missed, missed it all. Um, so I did, yeah, I, I won the race, but yeah, I kind of almost felt like I'd lost because I'd uh, neglected to, um, you know, see one of the, almost one of the greatest sights you could see in the world. And I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't really bothered to look. I had to go back there and do it again then. Do a better, faster in time. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> so bringing the attention back to the UK as well, you've got some fantastic experience here. I was wondering, where is the most remote trail you love doing here in the UK? Oh, that's got to be the um, Cape Wrath Trail uh, in Scotland. Um, it's up the north, starts in Fort William and just goes up the northwest side of, of Scotland all the way to Cape Wrath, oh, which wow. is kind of the furthermost point. And that's 230 miles. And, and me and a friend ran it um, two or three years ago in, uh, in December. Um, and that was that really, you know, really special. We were quite lucky with the weather, actually. Um, and it was just, yeah, just these long golden glens. Um, no one around. We'd see about one person a day um, for what did it take us four days or something. All right, in December it is dark quite a lot again, so you, you miss out a little bit there. But you, you're still having an experience in the outdoors, you know, if, if there's if the stars are out and so on. But that's a really special route. There is a race on that one, the Cape Breath Ultra, um, and it's really rugged. Yeah, it's rugged and remote and, and beautiful. It's um, yeah, cracking. Last question before we get to some wrap up ones. So in nearly a decade of running and a lot of outdoor journalism beforehand, you've had some incredible moments. But if you could relive just one, what would it be? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, I, can I have two? You can, oh, <laughs> go on. <laughs> um, I think in terms of sort of, uh, as, soon as, like, as soon as you agreed to two, I was thinking of three. Um, so I've done you. This is a bit greedy and selfish, self-indulgent, but yeah, I've done I've done UTMB four times. Um, my best year was my last one when I sort of finally got into the finally got into the top ten and, and played placed fifth. And that that was you know that that was a great moment for for me because it had been it felt like it had taken four years to get there kind of thing. But actually, the two previous years in a way were better because my my kids were there and I sort of you can sort of run the last hundred meters with them. So actually, those moments were were more precious and I suppose the other the other moment would be yeah finishing the Pennine Way uh, this year which was um which yeah was really special because I, I wasn't expecting anyone to be there in, in Edel um other than maybe my crew and and there was um yeah there was there was a crowd of people I, I don't know 30 people or something um you know and I knew almost none of them they did, they just turned up because you know, they wanted to see what was going on. And that was, that was, you know, wonderful. And there were some fell running legends there who had made the effort to come along. And even John Kelly, um, who, 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 whose record I'd just broken, um, had made the effort to come up. And yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. So I, I, yeah, I feel very grateful to, to those people, um, especially, but um, yeah. Yeah. So first wrap up question then. So ultramarathon runner Dean Carnesis uh, once said in his, his favourite snack on a, on a race is coffee beans sprinkled over brownies. So I started thinking, I was thinking, what's one mandatory snack to fuel up on in your ultramarathon runs? Well, if I can, you know, if it goes through the night, if I can get some tea, uh, I'm very happy. <laughs> really, it's probably, but it's probably chocolate, really. 
it's a good excuse to have a bit of a feast. Um, definitely something that served me well once or twice, but isn't usually available is, is custard. I was going to um, say, you mentioned that a few times in, in, a, in a couple of videos. That's gone down very well sometimes, but, but it's not always easy to arrange. Like it's not, you don't naturally think I'll just pop a, pop a packet of custard in my pocket um, for, for a run. Uh, but that needs to change, doesn't it? it needs to be, custard needs to be more widely available, I think. Let's start a movement. <laughs> so um, if you had perfect conditions right now, where would you run in the UK? Oh, yikes. I, I think... Uh, I probably would vote for Snowdonia. Um, I suppose, like, if Scotland was just, you know, just an hour away, <laughs> uh, I guess I would go up to, to, to Scotland because I, I, you know, like a lot of us um, in maybe in the south or even in, in, the, in the, well, wherever, like Scotland's just a long way away. So, um, and there's not great transport links either, really, or, or from where I am anyway. Um, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to be up there again. I'm trying to think when I was last up there, but I do, I do love Snowdonia. It's, um, mm. That's really special. Uh, to me, it's got a lot of majesty of the Lake District, but but you know a lot fewer people there. Yeah. Um, you know, tourists. So it's um, not there's anything wrong with tourists. Don't get me wrong, but but obviously when somewhere's a little bit quieter, it is a bit more can feel a, just a bit more of a precious adventure, isn't it? So yes, yeah, Snowdonia, right? I'll, I'll vote for. Perfect. And then last question: Where can we keep up to date with your career and also find out more info? Uh. Uh, well, I'm on I'm on most of the social media stuff. I'm probably probably quite an irritating presence. I, I'm probably quite easy to find. Uh, I won't. Uh, I'm on Strava. I'm on Instagram. I'm sure people can find me if if my name isn't searchable. It's usually ultra ultra demo, which is in, I'm becoming increasingly bar- embarrassed of. But I, my name was taken, I think. So uh, that's what I went for. So um, yeah, uh, by all means, follow me on there and then unfollow me as soon as you like. <laughs> and then we've got the book coming in May. Oh yes, thank you. Um, yeah, we're, we're still debating the title, uh, but yeah, hopefully May from from Vertebrate. Um, uh, it'll be awful though. Don't don't buy it. <laughs> Reverse psychology. I like it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> but Damien, thank you so much for for joining the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. Get in touch and send us your thoughts on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on social media with the links in the show notes and below. I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next one. Yeah.